Well, hello. Welcome. Good morning. My name is Nicholas. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Fountain Springs, and I have the great privilege to share with you this morning. Uh, we are in the second week of a seven-week series on the seven deadly sins, and these are those sins that have sort of taken on almost a mythic quality in, uh, in history, church history, even pop culture. And in a lot of ways, the seven sins or vices, they represent like a reduction of, uh, you know, essentially all of the sins that we are able to commit. They can, they can be like reduced to these seven sins. They're rooted in these seven. Last week, we talked about envy. And today we'll be talking about greed. And each of the seven sins have their positive opposites, which we sometimes call the seven virtues. This week, you and I are going to have a conversation about greed, but a conversation about greed is also a conversation about its positive opposite, which is generosity. And whenever we talk about living a generous life, can we just acknowledge that the feeling in the room can get like a little bit anxious and a little bit awkward because any conversation about generosity quickly becomes a conversation about how you spend your money, which I fully intend uh, to discuss today. But conversations about how we spend our, our financial resources are just hard. They're just tough. So what I'd like to do at the beginning here to maybe warm up the room a little bit is invite you to participate in a mental exercise with me. Would that be okay? This means yes. Nod your head. This means yes. You're still not nodding your heads, but uh, I'm doing it anyway. So the room that we are in is a room that's maybe about 8,500 square feet, I've been told. Okay, 8,500 square feet. If you're watching uh, online at home, I read this last week, the average living room is about 330 square feet, just for a frame of reference, if that's the room that you happen to be in at the moment. 8,500 square feet here. Now, a male African elephant stands 13 feet tall. It can be as long as 30 feet long, and it weighs somewhere between 16,000 and 20,000 pounds. The vibe in the room right now, it's pretty chill, right? Does everyone feel okay? You guys feel pretty comfortable? Like, no immediate threats or dangers. Everyone feels okay. <laughs> He's throwing his arms up. I don't know. As well as could be expected, I suppose, considering some guy just stood up and said he wants to talk to you about how you're spending, spending your money. But I want you to imagine how the chill vibe in the room might change if the doors opened or, you know, maybe let's say uh, he busted through like the Kool-Aid man. Imagine a male African element, elephant walks through that back wall and moves his way to the center of this room. And let's say that the crew of you sitting right here, you're at least aware enough to get out of the way when a 20,000-pound animal is about to sit or stand. And let's just say that you all kind of move out of the way. And in the middle of this room is standing a male African element, 13 by 30 by 20,000 pounds. At the very least, I think we can safely say that reptilian brain, that like the, the reptile brain at the top of your spine would start to engage your fight, flight, or freeze mechanisms. We would all be aware that we are in the presence of something much more powerful than any of us. And we, we would be sort of humbled by that, right? Now imagine, you know, that elephant, elephants in general are pretty calm 
uh, uh, animals. They don't generally, they're not necessarily known for their aggression, although they can sometimes respond aggressively when they feel threatened or trapped or something like that. But now imagine that that elephant begins to act as if he's a little bothered or something, right? He begins making movements and he kind of like, like kind of leans back on his, on his, on his rear, uh, his, his rear quarters and he lifts his leg, his feet up in the air. He starts pounding around. And I do this with my kids a lot. So let me do it again with you. Let's imagine he does like this kind of with his trunk, right? Something like that. Is that a decent elephant impersonation? The 930 was more impressed. Let's be honest. But let's imagine he starts to show some emotion and we start to read this emotion as anger. Now we've moved from beyond observation. We'd begin thinking about not only the safety of ourselves, but the safety of the people that we care about most in this room. But if you were a person in this room, when the elephant came to the middle and he started lifting up his legs and stomping around and blasting his trunk, if you were a person who had spent time working with elephants, maybe training elephants, you'd spent time feeding elephants, maybe in an animal sanctuary or something like that, day in and day out for a significant period of time. When the others of us are filled with terror and destruction, you might see something that we don't see. You might actually see a beautiful creature who's not upset at all, but is attempting to be playful in a very destructive way or something like that. You might see a situation different than we see. Now, when we, well, the reason, the reason this metaphor of the elephant in the room, right, works so well when we have conversations about our money or our stuff or generosity is because first, everybody knows the metaphor, right? We all kind of know what it means for there to be this topic or this conversation that nobody wants to broach because it will be awkward. But secondly, it works because the experience is so undeniable. If an elephant walks into this room, we can say we would react however we want, but it will quickly become clear to everybody else, ourselves included, what we are going to do when we are faced with an elephant in this room. Sometimes conversations about generosity can feel like they create the same amount of tension as an elephant in the room that for those of us who are maybe new to these conversations, it can seem like you and I are having a conversation right now that at any point could turn a corner and just begin to attack you and stomp all over you, right? But there are others of us in the room who maybe have experienced what, it, what it's like to live a life of generosity and we have witnessed the freedom that can come with generous living and where you see the potential for uh, terror or reasons to be afraid, it may be possible that other people right now are seeing the opportunity that's presenting itself to all of us. Some of us feel confronted, but others are reminded of just how wonderful it is to live a life of generosity. This metaphor forces us to come to terms with what we know to be true internally. I can talk all that I want about uh, how important I think it is to be generous in coffee shops or on social media. But I know what I do with my resources when I have them. I know who I spend my resources on and where I spend them, right? If I want to know what you value, heck, if you want to know what I value, 
Let's turn it around. If you want to know what I value, the most objective evidence you could use would be to look at my calendar and my bank account. Time and money. Where do I spend my time and where do I spend my money? That'll tell you all you need to know. And I can't hide behind like some hypothetical. So when we talk about generosity, it kind of forces us to be honest. Are we generous people? And it's at least worth pointing out before we go forward that every, as far as I know, nearly every major world religion sort of holds as a central teaching component this belief that we should be generous giving people, that we should tithe, that we should give alms. Sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes it's involuntary. But there's a, there's a connection that our happiness, our joy, our contentment in life is somehow hardwired to our lives of generosity, to giving to others. And I think if we took a poll this morning, if I could get all of you to answer in a, in a short amount of time, and I were to say, do you believe it's important to live a life of generosity towards others? I think every single person here would say yes. And yet, I don't think it's a secret that there is a wide gap between those who desire to live lives of sacrifice and blessing for others and those who are practicing lives of blessing and sacrifice for others. So that's what I want to talk about. And let me just sort of show you the end from the beginning. I want to talk about living a life of generosity, and I'm going to use three topics, gratitude, generosity, and faithfulness. So part one, here we go, gratitude. Turn to someone near you, you got five seconds, and tell them how you would define the word gratitude. Go. How would you define the word gratitude? Time's up. That's five seconds. My guess is you said something like gratitude is being thankful for what we have, right? Not along. Does that sound about right? Thankful. I think I heard some people say thankful. Gratitude is being thankful for what we have, but it sort of requires a follow up question, which is okay, so what do you have, right? What is it that we have? I'm going to show you a list of information that won't be new to you. I'm sure you've seen something similar like this in before, but I hope it gives us some perspective here as we begin, okay? So here we go. One and a half billion people in the world live on $1.25 a day or less. Two-thirds of the world's population lives on less than the price of a cup of coffee. Last weekend, Americans spent $1 billion uh, on fireworks, and at least half of that, I think, was spent in Rapid Valley. I watched... Uh, I watched the valley blow up on the third and the fourth. Every three seconds, a child dies of malnutrition. Children are always sort of disproportionately affected by a lack of resources compared to adults. In the United States, one in 165 children will die before the age of five. But in the world, one in six children will die before the age of five. The poor in the world spend 80% of their income on food. Americans spend 10% of their income on food. If you make $10,000 a year, you are in the wealthiest 6% of the world. If you own a car or a computer, you are in the wealthiest 7%. And if you have a college education, you are in the top 1% of the world. We could go on, but I suspect you kind of get the point that I'm trying to make, which is we live in a place and in a time where we have an extraordinary amount to be thankful for. How many people would swim oceans, would climb mountains, would cross deserts to have just a fraction of the life that you and I 
have every day. And it's important to note that none of this is our fault. I feel like that's an ins- a distinction we need to make, uh, especially based on some of the cultural conversations of the last four or five years. It's not our fault that we have the blessings that we do. We cannot help the lives that we were born into. But here's the irony. Look inward at your own life and your own heart. Maybe even look outward at the world that you observe around you and ask yourself if you get the sense that you and others are living as if they are the most blessed people on the planet and perhaps the most blessed people who have ever lived. Or has our privilege made us more selfish almost? And if it has, why do you suppose that is? Shouldn't more stuff generate more happiness? If we accumulate more stuff, presumably if you buy something at the time, you believed that it would have some added benefit to your life. So if you keep buying things that benefit your life, shouldn't it eventually benefit your life? Shouldn't more stuff lead to more happiness? And I think we could confidently say that that often isn't the case. The people who have the most are the least contented with it. We never have enough time in our calendars or money in our bank accounts. Again, time and money. We are all so busy and so broke. Our lives are runaway trains. Most of us are barely coping. Honestly, I hear this all the time. Most of us are we're limping through life right now. We live paycheck to paycheck. Something like two-thirds of Americans don't have $1,000 in savings. We're the wealthiest nation on the planet, right? We live paycheck to paycheck. For many of us, we're absolutely exhausted physically. We're emotionally exhausted. More than anything, we want alone time. We need time away to recharge. We need time away to get vacation. I'm not saying none of these things are true. I'm just saying, what would it be like to live like the other 8 billion people on the planet who have none of the things that we take for granted? I think we have a gratitude deficiency. I think we have a deficiency of gratitude, and greed is gratitude's sort of sworn enemy. It's so easy to focus on what we don't have or what we used to have. If only I had that job, the job that I want, or the job that I used to have, if only I had this kind of relationship in my life, then things would be okay. If only I had a certain amount of money, or I could go back and relive certain memories. But when we are grateful, we believe that God is in control and that God will provide all that we need. So whatever it is that we have at the moment, it's enough. Because God makes sure we have enough. I think many of us have far too much to be grateful. I think we have so much stuff in our lives that we've lost the capacity for gratitude. We don't know what it's like to want. We have so many blessings in our lives. Isn't that interesting? Let me try to demonstrate what I mean. Uh, Back in 2009, I was shoveling some snow and I was listening to a podcast uh, on some uh, uh, headphones. And I heard the story about this Norwegian uh, explorer adventurer named Alexander Gamay. He was sort of telling the story, or at least a clip from the video I'm about to show you was a part of this story. But uh, sometime in the mid-2000s there, he completed a 1,400-mile unassisted trip 
to the South Pole and back on skis. He's the only person that's ever done it. And as part of his planning, what he did was, it was he knew it was going to take him 90 days to get there and back. And as part of his planning, along the way, he buried these giant duffel bags, like caches of supplies that he might need uh, on his way back, right? And so it's the 86th day of his trip, and he's on his way back, and he's nearly completed the trek, but he is exhausted, and he is so hungry. He's nearly out of food. He's been rationing his food for several days now, and he's so hungry, and he knows he's about to come up on the second to last cache because he can see the the flag waving uh, above the snow. But he starts to think, I probably wouldn't have put anything to eat in that cache. So he doesn't want to get his hopes up at the possibility that there might be food, even though he is starving, starving, starving. So I want you to watch this video, and then we're going to chat about it right afterwards, okay? Here you go. Isn't that one of the most enjoyable videos ever to watch? You can feel everything he he feels. Let me ask you, when's the last time you shouted like that? For no one to hear just out of a deep sense of gratitude and gratefulness for cheese doodles. <laughs> what I think is so incredible about that video is, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he likes those snacks and that's why he put them in the bags, but it's not the taste of the food that he's about to consume that has him screaming what we are witnessing is like an, over, uh, an outpouring of his heart in that moment. It's 86 days of a trek, accomplishing a task, being short of food and hungry and alone, and then stumbling upon an incredible blessing. It's not about the food. 
Gratitude requires perspective. For Alexander Gamay, it took him 86 days to find it. But he had to lose almost all sense of normalcy to recognize it. I wonder if we have too much to recognize gratitude sometimes. When Jesus was approached by a rich young man of possession who asked him how he could not only live forever but have the fullest, most meaningful life, we find this in Luke 18. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. In other words, fullness of life, meaning and purpose and contentment is in direct relationship, direct relation to our ability to give what we have away. If you want to know how to live a full life, you've got to find a way to give this stuff away because that is not the answer. This is another one of the kind of like great reversals of the teachings of Jesus that the path to generosity, the path to uh, grateful, gratefulness is not found when you've accumulated enough stuff because when would you ever have enough, right? Right? And we hear people say things all the time, you know, if I was more financially stable, then I would be generous. If I won the lottery, I'd give a bunch of money to charities. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because when would you ever have enough? Those who are driven by desire always desire more. And those who are driven by generosity always find more to give away. Isn't that incredible? Um, the missionary to South America, Jim Elliott, wrote a journal while he was on his trip that his wife later, later kind of put together in a book called In the Shadow of the Almighty, which I would highly recommend to any particularly young men in the room who want to know how to live a life of passionate devotion to God. I would, man, I would recommend that book. But anyway, when Jim Elliott was considering what it meant to leave his family behind, to leave his newborn daughter behind, to go to uh, South America as a missionary, a trip from which he would not return, he said this, no one ever sacrificed so much that he had nothing left to give. I wonder if we are looking for opportunities to give as much as possible away in life. So part two, let's talk about generosity. Maybe you've heard me say before that it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than it is to think your way into a new way of acting. That our feelings and our thoughts follow our actions and it's not the other way around. Your, feeling, your feelings are determined by what you do often. This is also true of gratitude. You need to know like your gratitude will not produce generosity. Being grateful will not make you more generous. It's actually the other way around. As you practice generosity, you become grateful for the things that you have. Generosity produces gratitude. If you want to live a grateful life, live a generous life. So how do we live generously? Well, one of the earliest examples in the Bible is found in Leviticus chapter 23. And this is an agricultural example. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, but leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. So what God tells the Israelites to do is when they, when they harvest their square or rectangular fields, 
They're to harvest a circle out of the center of it and leave the corners for the poor to come and with dignity uh, feed themselves, pick their own grain. Are you leaving the edges of your resources for others? Again, you know the answer to this. I don't. But are you leaving like the excess for others or are you living a life that consumes everything that you produce? Are you even borrowing against future harvests to pay for the life that you're living now? Is everything that you have for you, is everything that I have for me? Consider this question. If you were to look at the people around you, say your friends or your peer group, whatever that is, if you were to look at the people around you, are you more or less generous than they are? The people that you spend most of your time with. If you were to look at your parents or your grandparents, are you more or less generous than they are? How about we really kind of fan the flame here? Think about the people that you most admire, the people that you want to be like someday. Are you more or less generous than they are? I would guess that the people that we want to emulate, the people we want to copy our lives after, are living wildly generous lives. Because they always are. The happiest people, the best people, are the people who found ways to give it away. They're not the people like Scrooge McDucking a pile of gold somewhere. You know what I mean? They're finding ways to be generous to others. And those people that you want to be like, those mentors in your life, maybe it's a grandparent, find a time to get them alone. You sit down with them and you ask them about their generous living. Ask them about what it was like to begin living generously. And if they don't say something like, you know what? It was the best decision we ever made. It's like we have more now than we had before. If they don't say something like that, I will buy your lunch. I will buy you lunch. Because I promise you they will. What generous living has to offer you is more than you could possibly purchase with all of your possessions. Learning to give it away. But greed isn't the only reason that we lack generosity. Let me tell you about another one. Um, I grew up in central Michigan, mid-Michigan. Uh, my dad uh, lived in Flint. My mom lived in a little town called Owasso. And Flint was uh, a, a very large automaker uh, auto Union Town. At the time, my grandpa worked at a Buick plant. My stepdad made batteries at a Ford plant. I tell you that to say, um, there's a lot of people who are very proud of like their blue-collar work ethic. I see some of that here in South Dakota, the people that I talk to. A bunch of people are very proud of their work ethic, what, what they've built and what they've earned. And I think one of the reasons it's sometimes hard for us to be generous is because we believe we deserve what we have. We've earned it. We've worked hard for it. And that is true. It's also kind of not true. Look at this verse in Deuteronomy 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
Yes, we work hard. Yes, you deserve what you have. But we need to remember that everything that we have is a gift from God. And there are people in the world, probably billions of them, who work as hard or harder than I do or you do, and they get paid far less compensation. So yes, you work hard. But we have also been given a tremendous amount of privilege. And we need to use that. We shouldn't feel guilty about it. It's not our fault, but we need to use it. We're responsible to use what we have to help others who haven't been given as much. We need to remember that everything we have is a gift from God. The most, the most, frequently, com, uh, commanded, uh, the most frequently mentioned command in the Bible is do not fear, do not be afraid. But the second most frequently mentioned command in the Bible is remember, do not forget. Do not forget the Lord your God. He's given you the life that you have. He's put you in the place that you are in. To live a life of faithful generosity. So let's talk about part three, faithfulness. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this to say about our possessions. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you walk out of here this morning and you buy somebody lunch at Qdoba, that's a kind gesture. It's, 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 it's a good thing to do. But when we talk about living lives of faithful generosity, it has broader implications. We're talking about living in a way that like, blesses the people around you. It means developing a pattern, a habit of giving in your life. You become a generous person. It's more than what you do. It's who you are. Uh, now for the slightly more awkward part of the teaching. For most of this country's history, we, and even Christians, have done an extraordinary job of living generously, living for others. You may not know this, but Every hospital, outside of like maybe the last couple decades, every hospital that was ever started in this country was started by men and women, mostly women, who loved Jesus and believed that Jesus was calling them to find a way to meet the physical needs of those in their community, especially the sick. Every university in this nation was started by religious groups, again, outside of like the last handful of years or whatever, was started by religious groups who believed it was important to show the love of God to their community by offering education for the children. Every rescue mission, every food pantry, at least all of the early uh, addiction and rehab programs, all of them were born out of people who were sacrificing their time and their money for the world around them to live generously. But here's the problem. Some of you, specifically, are not going to be happy about this. If you were born after 1981, you are among the least generous people that have ever lived in this country. What's that, 39 and younger? 41 and younger? I honestly don't know. <laughs> My math is horrible. I shouldn't be talking about money. Um, at some point, there was a disconnect between living generously, and we failed to teach it to the future generations. 
If you were born after 1981, you are the least generous people in the history of this country by a wide margin and by every unit of measurement, by total amount given, by percentage of income, by consistency of giving. We have a, we have a problem right now that it hasn't been taught to the future generations, the, the, the transformational, life-changing power of generous living is not getting passed along further down the road. Can I show you a fascinating statistic? This is from uh, a study by George Barna. 80% of people born after 1981 say generosity is very to extremely important to them. 80%. It is by far the highest percentage of any generation. People born after 1981 more of them say generosity is extremely important to them or very important to them than any other generation. I think second place is like 56%. The problem is the second statistic. 84% of people born after 1981 give less than $50 a year in donations. 20 times less than the next closest generation. There is a disconnect between our desire to meet the needs of the world around us and sometimes our actions in doing this. I don't think that's a, a surprise for you to hear that, that sometimes we say we want to do one thing and we almost have begun to live in a world where it's enough to say that you want to do something, you don't actually have to do it. So we can talk for hours about how the world should change and we can argue about which political candidate we believe has the interests of the people in mind and we can talk about how tragic it is that people are living in poverty and we can read Karl Marx and we can read Ibrahim Kendi and we can listen to podcasts about injustice and like I said earlier, you can paint your body from head to toe in a Ukrainian flag, but it's all nonsense. It's much easier to signal virtues than it is to live them. And in the most literal sense of the expression, we have got to begin to find a way to put our money where our mouth is if we want to change the world. Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the work. Or Jesus said it like this, the harvest is literally everywhere. I just can't find any workers. Nobody wants to go out into the fields. It's so much easier to talk about it than it is to do it. Is there anything more common than a greedy person that expects others to be generous? If you want people to listen to what you have to say, let's take a look at how you live your life. What are you doing with what you've been given? So in closing, let me make sure there's no confusion here. I am not saying that generosity is some sort of transaction by which, like, if you give to others, you're able to clear your conscience, you don't have to feel bad about yourself, or that you add another room on your heavenly mansion, just sending up the lumber there for old Peter to build you another room. That is not what I'm saying. I do not, I think those are distortions of the teachings of Jesus. But what I am saying is that your generosity is a statement about what you believe of the world and your role in it. Do you see yourself as a partner in rebuilding the brokenness that leads to single-parent households and parents who are addicted to alcohol and drugs, that leads to empty pantries and empty refrigerators? Do you see yourself as a partner in working to solve the problems of shut-off notices for electricity and gas and water, to solve the problems of dirty clothes and smelly clothes, 
of childhood hunger? Do you believe that you have a role to play? Your generosity makes a statement about that. And if you hang around Fountain Springs long enough, what you will realize is we are a church who believes we are called to work towards those ends. And we work our butts off at it. We do. Not as a tactic of evangelism. We're not handing out groceries after somebody makes a prayer of conversion. It's goodness without an agenda. Because we believe this is what it means to live out the way of Jesus. To love people where they are. But here's the thing. The only way we can give without an agenda outside of these walls is if we give with an agenda inside of these walls. And that is what God is calling us to do. To trust him with our resources. Not telling you how much that should be, what that should look like. I'm just talking to you about living a generous life. What would it look like for you to bring your two fish and your five loaves to the feet of Jesus and say, take this and feed the people. Do with it what you will. And isn't it incredible what God has shown he has the power to accomplish with our small gifts? Let's pray. God, thank you for this series and for this day and for the reminder that in spite of the messages that we are hearing from the world around us that would convince us we should be pursuing possessions and wealth and status, that you are calling us to find ways to just keep giving more and more away. That the pathway to true joy and happiness and gratitude is perspective. So give us a kingdom perspective. Help us to see the possibility. For everyone in this room, Lord, would you move our hearts to consider what more we should be doing? What can we give? And then would you take it and multiply it and build your church? We love you in your name. Amen.